Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Uh, let's go into let's let's go into the second foundation. Now we've covered the foundation, foundation, and empire, and now we're doing second foundation. And uh, the basic issue that we got from foundation and empire was this is. You know, the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov is really good because it's the first major science fiction work that that Asimov did that really was a social science fiction. So it wasn't technology science fiction, it was social science fiction. Now, there's been other social science fiction works, and we're going to read, by the way, the assignment for um, the next reading assignment is that we're going to talk about starting on Thursday, is a brief book. It's not long at all, but it's a really one of the classics. It's Brave New World by uh, Huxley. So that one you want to start right away. That won't take you more than a couple hours, hour and a half to read. It's a, real, it's a fast read, but it's a, it's a really spectacular one. So we'll start talking about that on Thursday. Also, your writing assignment is due on Thursday. So let's um, you know make sure we get, we get started on that. It's only... Two and a half to three and a half pages, and you model it off of an opinion piece. And what we're doing is you're writing about the Foundation trilogy, some aspect of it, but trying to relate it to what's going on here. So you're trying to explain to the reader why that particular science fiction book is relevant to our political lives today. So you're saying, see, we're going through these crises. This is the type of thing. So you want to make the science fiction real, realistic to us. So it's not just an abstract story dealing with a fantasy that's out there. It's something dealing with real life and that we are concerned about it. And so that's what, that's what the whole issue of science fiction is all about, to make the science fiction relevant to contemporary life. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to explain your opinion. That's why I I model it off of an opinion piece, such as what you get with Thomas Friedman and Nicholas Kristof, Paul Krugman, so on like that in the New York Times, explaining the relevance of this, of the the novel to uh, the interpretation of politics today. Double space, normal margins. Okay. Well, the main lesson we got from the second novel, Foundation and Empire, was that the science of psychohistory had to be able to include the anomalies. Just prediction based on the level of past data doesn't work. You know, if you look at predictions that we do in the social sciences, we have trouble predicting elections, stock markets, all types of things, conflicts. We do pretty well. We can do it, but we have trouble doing it. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. There's all types of difficulties in predicting things. Economists are having a, always have a terrible time predicting the stock markets and, and other things because there's so many things that go on. They can make general predictions, but a lot of times they're just wrong. And a lot of times they miss major things like crashes and so on. Look at it on the political side of things. The State Department missed the fall of the Shah of Iran the fall of the Soviet Union. (laughs) I mean, you get the idea? They miss 
all types of major events, Middle Eastern stuff they miss. Uh, so, so when we're looking at politics, prediction is always, ba- based on past stuff, prediction is always a dicey affair. So you can only go so far with mathematical models that are based on past data, things that have happened in the past, and predicting them, using them to predict into the future. You have to have some correction mechanism, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The correction mechanism, which is what the second foundation is all about. So in this science, this new science, the science of psychohistory, Asimov is talking about the elements of prediction from past data using models that we are very actually we are that work we work with today nonlinear dynamic models which is my specialty with differential and difference equations but also event history models sometimes called hazard models or survival models those are statistical models that predict things into the future when rare events will occur when coups will occur when changes will occur Well, what do we get now from the second foundation? What's the, what's the, what's the real premise of the second foundation? The last book of the, of the, of the trilogy. What do you, what did you think about that? From a political perspective, what what did you think about that when you, when you read that? Was that speak a little louder? The aftermath of dealing with a major character must be in its effective politics. Okay, the aftermath. Because the beginning of the book deals with how the new is finally uh, neutralized. And so, but in response to that, the second foundation have to make themselves known. And that means they, they can't like, function in the same way now that the first foundation knows about them. So then it, they have to make it seem as if they advance again, they're defeated. So it's how the like one of the correction mechanisms in uh, nonlinear mathematics have to remain separate from the actual flow of the thing. Otherwise, you can make the work and how. Well, that's that's great. That's great. So, you said so that they can um, they had to disappear again. They couldn't contaminate the work. And and how would they contaminate? How would the second foundation contaminate the work? The first foundation is a foundation of physical scientists. The second foundation is a foundation of psychologists. And the way the First Foundation is set up, like, nobody likes to feel that they're being controlled by anybody. And the entire job of the Second Foundation is to direct the path of the First Foundation to Selden's ultimate view of history. That's really cool. So the First Foundation is to be directed by the Second Foundation. And the Second Foundation... But if the First Foundation knows that the Second Foundation is pulling the strings, then it will rebel. So isn't this an interesting thing? Asimov is saying that the only way psychohistory can work is in the presence of ignorance, in the presence of not knowing what's actually being being done. 
What's that? That's why he didn't need any psychologists on the first relationship. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. That's why he didn't need any psychologists on the first relationship. Yeah, and that's why there were no psychologists on the first foundation. Now, this is really interesting, because remember, you're trying to predict into the future. When you're predicting into the future, if you can see something coming, if you're driving down the street and you see that there's a, somebody in the middle of the street or a car in the middle of the street or a stopped truck or something like that, you're given a fair warning that if you keep on going, you're going to crash into that truck. So if you're trying to base your predictions based on the past, the truck isn't there. Based on the past, you're looking at your velocity, your momentum, the mass of the car, the, the plan you have to get to wherever you're going. Do you get the idea? But the truck is into the game plan. So if you can see the truck in advance, then suddenly that becomes part of the game. That becomes something you have to avoid it. So having the ability to know what's coming in the future disrupts the ability of you basically working on the stuff on, on, on the level of the past. So Asimov's psychohistory is, is really a situation where the masses of the people, the galaxy, remember the psychohistorians are only a few in number. So the masses of the galaxy are supposed to operate blind. They're supposed to move into the future without knowledge of the future. And that every once in a while, listen to a Selden videotape or a Selden, you know, hologram to see how they're doing and to see if they're going through a Selden crisis. But the reality is they're not, they're not supposed to know about the future. They're supposed to be running literally with blindfolds on and not seeing into the future. So, why does the First Foundation react so violently What's that? In the beginning, they don't. In the beginning, they don't. They actually hope that the second foundation is going great. Like, when you find out you've got like a watchdog, protective person, then like the immediate mass reaction would be of complacency that we don't need to worry, they'll take care of everything for us now. But then like, there's always going to be those few people who don't like being controlled, and they're the ones who start everything. There's people who don't like being controlled. What does this have to say with free will? And what you're saying is absolutely correct. What does this have to say about free will? What about the idea of being controlled? Well, I mean, that, I mean, that was even in Foundation Empire with the mule. I mean, people, be, people don't like, not that they don't like, but it, it leads to a sort of totalitarian control. <laughs> if, Interesting. Um, if you can control how people feel, or if you can control their free will. And... I think it was really interesting when the mule lost control of Captain Pritchard. Yeah. And he wanted to kill him. I mean, this was a man who had just spent, like, the last several years uh, leading the mule's fleet out in search of the Second Foundation and, you know, was his greatest advocate and follower. And then, you know, the minute he was no longer under mental control, he wanted to kill him. So. Go ahead, yeah. Um... And it's like relevant kind of now to like Iraq because the mule is like Saddam Hussein, it's one person who controls the entire group of people, and the second foundation is almost like America, a group of people controlling. So, I mean, not in the exact same way, but. That's a very interesting analogy. The people feel the same control. It's one 
one group of people controlling them for another. I mean, they still don't have any free will. There's another person leading them to this next empire. So Mule had an idea for an empire too. It might not have worked out because he was just one person. A mean and nasty person, but still he had an empire idea. The people are just all like, well, whether it's a mule or the second foundation, we just don't have any control over our future. So, I mean, that that was their first thing. That's very interesting. So, the comparison between Saddam Hussein and and the mule versus America. Now, America is the good guys, from our perspective, and the second foundation are the good guys from Asimov's perspective. The What's that? And the oldest dissidents, the people who refuse to accept American law, like America in Iraq at all. They're always dissidents, yeah, that are refusing to accept American rule. Well, you know, that's very relevant because here we have the first foundation violently opposing in this last book the influence of the second foundation and here we also have the the people in Iraq violently opposing many of them, not all of them uh, the influence of the United States in the country now what is it about control because when, when you ultimately end the novels, you still have control. But what is it about human nature that Asimov is saying about the nature of control? People rebel when they know they're being controlled. I mean, the, the, he's saying that... I mean, I think he's kind of saying that to some extent control is necessary. There has to be someone in control. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying there has to be someone in control. But Go ahead. If people... I mean, he's almost—he's almost advocating sort of a, a hidden control. He's advocating, yeah. you know, people—people people need to be controlled because, to some extent, people—you know—there's like the mob. I mean, the reason psychohistory works basically through you know mob, mob mentality, or not really mob mentality, but you know how people think in mobs, how people you know not independent thought. You, you can't have individual thought in psychohistory, and he's sort of saying there has to be someone controlling people because that mob thought won't—that mob thought won't get you where you need to go. But at the same time, if those people know that they're being controlled, then they're going to rebel against that control. Isn't that interesting? You both need control, but the populace is going to rebel against the, the, uh, against the control. You need even a benign dictator is not something that's valuable. It's not something that people want. They want this issue of freedom. But then what freedom do they actually have if they can't see into the future? If they can't use psychohistory to predict into the future... What real freedom is it? Freedom to to do what? To destroy oneself? Meaning they couldn't predict a mule. So the second foundation was needed to make that correction. Did the galaxy really want mule? He was she was like Attila the Hun, <laughs> running rampage on everything. But at the same time, once they got once the second foundation gets rid of the mule, the first foundation doesn't want the second foundation around. What is this thing about how do you guide a society? when in fact they don't want to be guided. And is this relevant to us today? What do you think? Well, I think it's almost like they're kind of treating them like children. You know, you have to give kids some sort of boundaries and control and they'll run wild. And it's, even though they don't like it and they'll, in the present, hate you for it, they'll thank you for it when they later. 
I wonder if you might be able to say that this is something then, it's a good point you raise. It's, it's, like, it's like children in a family. If this is sort of very general, look at the ideological complaints that we have in the United States where when we say get government off our backs. People are saying have no taxes. But now look, what, look what's actually doing. The, the rebellion against taxes is causing us to go into huge debt and you folks who are approximately 18 years old, 19 years old, are going to be paying for the irresponsibility of the current generation. I mean, you're going to, the, the people who are lending the money for all that, all those debt, all that debt, they're going to ask for it back with interest. And the people who are ranking up the credit cards, George Bush and the Congress, they're going to be retired. They're not going to have to pay for a dime of it. So they're literally piling it on you. It's irresponsible behavior. So the real question is, you know, should people be allowed to do things? Should people be allowed to have a certain amount of freedom? But on the same, on the same token, it's get government off our backs. Let us be free of the government. Look at also the people who complain about environmental stuff. Guaranteed, we've seen it in developing countries. When you don't have environmental rules enforced, the countries are trashed. I mean trashed. The companies just go in and they do whatever they can. If you look at American companies in Mexico, among, they've done public surveys, in Mexico, the Mexicans' opinion that the worst, you know, any job is better than no job, but if you have a choice of jobs, the worst job that you can get is working for an American company in Mexico. It may seem that strange, but why is that the case? Well, why do these companies go to Mexico? If you think about it, where do you find them? They're right across the border. There's like a mile or two across the border. Why did they ship their stuff from California or Texas literally a mile or two on the other side? Well, they didn't want to do something that they had to do that they would have had to do here. A lot of the stuff is pollution control. Now, Mexico has really good anti-pollution laws, really good environmental laws, but none of them are enforced. The people, the people come to inspect the plant. You just pay them off, and off they go. There's toxic waste done by American companies in Mexico that are just come out of a pipe. Liquid, fluid waste to come out of a pipe and run down the gutters and the children are jumping over it and so on. That same toxic waste that, 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 that's just literally out in the open the children are throwing rocks in it and sticks, that same toxic waste, you have to spend an enormous amount of money for here in the United States containerizing it. You, it can't touch the air no one can breathe it. You have to have special protective clothing when dealing with it. It has to be containerized. has to be burned in special containers. It's just open there. Now, when I go to, when I go to Kenya, there's a jogging trail that I often like to run in, in Nairobi. And this jogging trail has a creek. That's a pretty fast-flowing creek that goes into the Nairobi River that is supplying the water for the whole town. And when I get to, the, and over this creek is a bridge that once was a bridge. It looks like the Jolly Green Giant just picked up a bunch of cars and crumpled them like aluminum foil and dropped it on top of the creek. So it, it is a bridge, but it's just crumpled metal. Anyway, so I, when I get to that creek, when I'm within 100 feet of that creek, I start jogging, what do they call that, aerobic jogging or anaerobic or something, where you're not getting enough oxygen, I hold my breath and I keep on jogging. I can't breathe within 100 feet of that creek. 
I just can't breathe. The fumes coming out of the creek. And now the kids are playing and everything. I can't breathe. I can't, I literally, it, you can't breathe it in. And you get to the creek, and then you hold your breath, and then you walk over, hoping that you're not going to fall over this crumpled metal bridge. Because <laughs> if you fall into it, I think you'd just die. And you get to the other side, and they run like a bat out of heck, you know, to, as fast as you can get away from the creek. And when you're finally 100 feet away from the creek, you gasp. <laughs> you breathe again. And that's water that's going into the Nairobi water supply. So, a lot of people in Nairobi <coughs> that can afford it use bottled water. <laughs> but anyway, the common people just drink it. And they die. They have problems. So, the companies are just polluting. So if you don't have these, these, these laws, and you don't enforce these laws, if you don't get government on people's backs, people will trash the place. I mean, it's a guaranteed rule. They will trash the place. So, getting government off the back sounds great. Letting free enterprise do whatever it wants sounds great. But the reality is, if you don't have a police officer nearby... Someone will drive down the street, open their window, and throw a Burger King wrapper right onto the street. <coughs> They'll litter. They'll trash the place. Whether it's Beverly Hills, Bel Air, or Decatur, or Atlanta, they'll trash the place. So government needs to be on people's backs. People can't be completely independent. That's what Isaac Asimov is saying. Whether you believe it or not, that's what at least what he's saying, that you need this control. But on the other hand, the control that he's talking about is it right? Is not open control. You see, when government is on your back, you at least know it. But is Isaac Asimov saying that you shouldn't even know it? Go ahead. Well, what about that, like, classic adage, slightly cleaned up that you don't crap where you eat? I mean, it's because these companies can go to Mexico. I mean, I, I honestly think that no American company would do that, let's say in California. For no other reason than you can separate yourself from the Mexican populace, but you have a really hard time dealing with the people who are ostensibly buying your product if you're ruining where they live. I mean, even regardless of environmental regulations, if there are a hundred houses around your factory and you know you're dumping benzene and everyone gets leukemia, they're not gonna want to buy your product. And so, I mean there is some sort of like self-regulation there just by market interest. I mean, free trade does have its own restrictions not imposed by the government. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, which makes it all the more all the more likely that companies will try to find ways to do it where they won't be offending their customers. If you go into the Midwest, you'll find a lot of factories that are between and out west, a factory between like little mountains, little mesas, they're sort of stuck in the little middle of nowhere in the Dakotas. And, and then you look and you see they're pumping out enormous amounts of air pollution. But they're hidden and they're buried away. There's a place up north here, right across the border of Georgia into Tennessee called uh, Copper Hill, otherwise known as Ducktown, Tennessee. And one of the... Uh, um, Professor Shore the, uh, in, uh, in biology, he used to take uh, students up in his, his field trips up there uh, just to see the, the pollution. What happened was that they had a, a whole bunch of, in this area, they had a whole bunch of uh, mining and a battery and 
Brazilian other types of companies that violated every pollution law in the world. And it, there's, they were buried in the mountains. They hid themselves in the mountains. And illegal stuff went on. They bribed people. They made, the, you know, made sure the governors and the legislatures weren't going to chase them. Eventually, the feds came in. But they had 100 years of running rampage, just doing whatever they want. Well, you go to Ducktown, Tennessee now. I used, as a pilot, I, I used to fly over that and take pictures of what it is. It looks like a moonscape. No, there's been no f- business activity there for 30 years. They shut the whole place down. But it's just a, a wasteland. When you fly over it, it's like, who did this? It's like someone dropped an atom bomb on the place. As far as the eye can see, 50-mile radius in all directions, it's just waste, and it was mostly from acid rain that they were just pumping stuff into the air and also dumping stuff in the ground. There were there are caverns on the ground. There was there was some flat area. There's suddenly huge caverns, caverns the size of football fields or astrodomes, and huge caverns where the ground just fell away. It just dropped. The acid rain and everything was just dissolving the ground, the limestone and everything in the ground, until eventually the, the people woke up one morning and there was a like a meteor crater <laughs> right in, the, in their backyard where the ground fell away. Well, there's all types of health and environmental problems up there. There's still people up there. In fact, the sort of country folk mentality is very defensive. I went up there with my plane taking pictures. And at the airport, the local airport, we were feeling quite threatened when they uh, when they thought we were in to investigate the environmental problems because the, the locals were defensive of their jobs, <laughs> whatever jobs they had. They were pumping gas to the airport. And uh, my safety pilot and myself were, because, you know, if you have a camera going, you can't fly the airplane at the same time. And we were feeling a little bit threatened, like we shouldn't talk about it. And then we had to start a story. Oh, I'm just an academic... Uh, the uh, the wives let us off for the day, so we thought we'd uh, buzz up here. We just noticed the you know the interesting area, pop down, get some gas, and we're going back to Atlanta. Just try to make it sound like we're not up there investigating, but the reality was we were up there investigating. And so you have uneducated people not really able to defend themselves. So it really is the question: is should government be on the back to defend those people? If people are allowed to destroy their environment, they will destroy their environment. The issue, though, with Asimov is in the United States, when government gets on your back, you know it, and it produces a backlash. There are Republicans and Democrats who fight over the issue of whether government should be on your back. And the libertarians go in the extreme direction of saying no government, Republicans more in the middle, Democrats more on the side of saying, you know, it's okay to have more government that control the environment and so on like that. But at least it's open. You see it. What's going on here with the foundation? Asimov is really saying something different. To control the future, to make it okay, you have to have someone that's hidden. Well, I mean, it's kind of like those urban legends about, um, about how, you know, in, in the U.S. there's the ostensible government. You know, such as, you know, the First Foundation did actually have a government. And, you know, and then there's the, the, the shadowy, dark, smoke-filled room where, you know, men in pinstripe suits decide the fate of the free world. Yes. I mean, it, I mean it's kind of the same thing. Whether you yes, it is not, the same thing. It's, it's sort of like, 
intellectually you think, wow, that can't really happen. And then some part of you says, wow, that might really happen, but you have no way of proving it. And I kind of feel like the first foundation people are just kind of like, well, hmm, there might be a second foundation, but we can't prove it. And they don't, you know, there's no, we don't feel their influence. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of the same thing. Actually, to be quite, in, to be quite honest, it, it, it's, it's very much the same thing. People controlling things behind... By the way, is this unusual for us? What, what just happened now about the, uh, about the espionage, the, the bugging of telephone calls abroad? That that, I don't remember what the story was. Well, the basic idea was that, uh, that President Bush authorized the eavesdropping onto telephone calls done by Americans abroad. Now, the congressional hearings that are going on right now are saying that that was never authorized. And if you listen to Gonzalez, Attorney General, talking about the thing, he says, well, look, these people are Al-Qaeda people, and they're talking to Al-Qaeda people, and we want to know who they are. Well, what's being missed is a lot of the people who were being eavesdropped on were people like Greenpeace, the Sierra Club. <laughs> they were people that were not Al-Qaeda people. And you're talking about very few actual real leads coming out of, coming out of, coming out of that. So the other thing that we're, that we're talking about is whether the government should do stuff that's not seen. Remember, how did the eavesdropping program actually come to the light of day? Was it because the government said, oh, by the way, and this is what we're doing, and then people started to object to it? How did it actually happen? How is, where did this brouhaha start? How? How did they come forward? Who came forward? Anyone know? You've got to read the New York Times to be able to find this out. Well, when they came forward, who did they talk to? Journalists. What's that? Journalists. Journalists. That's exactly right. It was published in the New York Times, meaning Congress didn't know about it. Pardon me? Yeah, I mean, you don't go to Congress. You tell the media. There was no oversight. Some people in the program leaked it out <coughs> to, to the New York Times. The New York Times published it. So had that not occurred, then they still would not have known about it. The, the problems with Abu Ghraib, the prison that we were running, the secret CIA prisons, the transporting of suspected terrorists and, it turns out, completely sometimes, com sometimes completely innocent people uh, by, by the CIA to various prisons and other places and actually delivering these people sometimes to other countries where they would be tortured. All this stuff was being done secretly, and it came out in the newspaper. Now, Asimov actually has something to say about all of this. It is in the nature of... Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's interesting to like think about that, like, since all the stuff that was hidden from us, and yes. Asimov thinks that to control our future, that you have to hide something. It's interesting. It's almost like our government's doing that from us, but we don't like that. We exactly. And what happens when we find out that the government did that secretly? We rebel. There's congressional hearings. Everybody's upset. So we don't. Congressional hearing really a form of rebellion. I mean, mild perhaps. Well, they usually protest it within the people as well. Like I mean, if you look at the espionage, many people don't like that. Like thinking that maybe even in like the country they're bugging like our telephones to like 
spy on us or whatever, even if the government has good intentions of protecting our future or whatever, like, still people don't like that invasion mm. of privacy, whether it's yeah. good or not, yeah. no, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's just kind of like a, a channeled form of rebellion. It's not even really rebellion. I mean, to some extent, the people in the government can't be the ones rebelling against the problem that they started. I mean, I mean, I mean, theoretically, like with this phone tapping thing, it was started by people in the government. So then you're going to have your ostensible rebellion, but it's by people in the government against people in the government. And I mean, really, it just cuts out the entire American populace. Uh, I mean, yes, it affects us. It's a problem for the American populace, but it's the people who did it being tried by other people who are part of their same government. And it's just, I don't know, it just always seems to me like it, it's not quite... It's not the same as rioting in the streets. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm not, not that I'm advocating rioting no, in the no, streets, mind but, you, but I mean, it's not, it's not any form of rebellion on a, on a non-governmental level. But still, can, would you agree then we can at least say that it's people voicing discontent? Yes. In some authorized way. In some, in some institutionalized way, in effect, in the legislature, in hearings in the, in the legislature. But that's great. So we have discontent, sometimes authorized, sometimes people rioting, sometimes people just voicing discontent in congressional hearings. So the real question is, though, should we have a goal, a goal of controlling society without society knowing that we're controlling it. That's what Asimov is really advocating in the, in the history of psychohistory. He's saying that people are going to do, are going to run into bad problems unless you have some form of control. But that control he's advocating, the second foundation, isn't that the same as what Plato was talking about, the old philosopher king? The idea of having someone who's wise is there. It's really much of a difference between the second foundation and the Socratic notion of a philosopher king. When when Plato writes about the idea of a wise intellectual governing benignly, you're really ultimately resorting down to a benign despot. We're, you're really talking about someone governing for the benefit of the people. Whenever you have someone governing for the benefit of the people and really doing it altruistically, how long does it last? Only at the most that person's lifetime. And some person that become sometimes the person becomes delusional and start thinking, hey, I'm doing great. <laughs> and then because if you remember what happened with Napoleon? He started out with the Republic. He started out reforming the Civil Code and the Napoleonic Code, reforming business operations, trade operations. His first few years were so great that Beethoven dedicated his Third Symphony to him. And then what happened? Napoleon crowned himself Emperor and said, It must be me. Let me control everything. And then Beethoven scratched off the dedication to the Third Symphony to Napoleon and dedicated it to someone else. So you see, this idea of 
having a philosopher king is really wild. So, in one sense, Asimov is saying, you can't really control people very much. Because if you control them too much, they don't have an, a level of freedom to act. But on the other hand, you have to control something, otherwise they're going to bash the place. No, Asimov is not endorsed control of an individual. It's endorsed control of a mob. Like each individual has the ability to act however they want to end, like in the uh, Foundation Empire when they patricians took to the areas. He's saying, do whatever you want, attack today, or you'll never attack with one for an entire army. It doesn't matter. The actions of a single individual, unless they're an anomaly like the mill, are like. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. But see, I beg to differ, because I think that was wrong. Because today or never doesn't really matter. But with an entire army, that's not the actions of one man. The, that's, that's, the, that's that man's action extended out over as many people as in the army. Because that's one man's ambition. One man is the one doing the... But it's one man's ambition. But don't you think that that... I mean, that's essentially a mob. I mean, an army is just as taken as individuals as a mob. Like, there are a lot of people... Unless the, the army, army chooses to attack... Like, oh, no, it's the army attacked because Belvios told them to attack. If he didn't say anything and they attacked anyway, then it would be a mob. The mob mentality is, okay, let's all go and do this. The army just will obey our orders. So but if I mean, somebody else came along... They would do whatever that person but said. But psychohistory can't account for individuals. It can only account for large groups of people. But then, wasn't that sort of like a an individual taking control of a large group of people? Doesn't that alter something? You're talking about Mule? No, I'm, I'm talking yeah. about Del Riosi and oh, the I see. army. And yeah. the fact yeah. that he controlled that many people. I mean, not the same level of control the Mule had, but doesn't that to some extent alter psychohistory? I mean, there was a lot of people. Mm. Not as much, I think, like, even, like, in Cuba and anything, you always, the rebels always had a chance against the soldiers because soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels weren't. They, f- they fought because they... Out of altruism, fight. yeah. But the soldiers, I mean, if one general told them, you attack the foundation at full force, and then the very next day someone said, no, come retreat back home, they're going to retreat back home. They don't care. But, but I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, yeah, there's so many people, yeah. but I guess just the fact that, I mean... They just don't. They never had. They never cared. I mean, if all of them individually wanted to attack the foundation because they just believed in it, then no matter what anyone said, they would do it. But because it was about one person telling them, it was still one person asking. If the emperor told them the very next day, no, you're not attacking. Well, they're gonna not attack. So I mean, yeah. that was probably the biggest case. If they were all just just wanting to attack, no matter what anyone said, then then you would have a mob, and then yeah. You know, um, there is one theme that we're going to see repeated in a huge number of the novels that we're going to be talking about, including the novel that we're going to start on Thursday, which is uh, Huxley's Brave New World. The idea of control, the idea of controlling people. There's two elements that we want to consider. Not everybody was upset with being somewhat controlled. There are always, there's a percentage of people. For example, not everyone is upset about the eavesdropping that the Bush administration is doing. Some people are saying, in fact, they've done public surveys and a majority of the people are willing to go along with it as long as it controls terrorism. So, not everybody's concerned or actually con- upset with 
some level of control, but there's a percentage of the people that are, con- uh, that are upset. So the point that you're raising, that from psychohistory's perspective, that we have free will on the individual level, as long as on the masses, the level of the masses, the things work out the way they're supposed to work out. That's a real tension that we're going to be dealing with. At what level do you allow individual response, individual freedom? At what level do you allow that to occur until it starts impacting the collective? Now, if you look at China, for example, they have very strict limitations on individual freedom, on what they, people can see on the internet, what they can Google, things like that, because they're so concerned about the impact that individual freedom could have on the level of the masses, the control of the overall trajectory evolution of the society. They could have a revolution. That's what they're really working about. And that's what the bottom line is, what Tiananmen Square. And their opposition to Falun Gong, the meditation group. The issue is that if you let a little bit out, the whole society might collapse. That's what they're really afraid of. And so what we're dealing with is that tension. How much individuality, how much individual freedom can you allow out? Now, Asimov is basically saying you can allow full individual freedom as long as it doesn't impact on the evolution of the, of the masses. And, and Mule's individual freedom was too great. So he had to be held back. Is that really that much different than Napoleon? When Napoleon escaped from prison and came with his second coming, he, he, he attacked again and finally had to be crushed a second time at Waterloo. Why did everybody get so excited? He was very much like a mule. He had the ability to energize people, to get people to do their own stuff. They couldn't let him have individual freedom, so they had to banish him again to another more distant prison in another more distant island. They couldn't let him have individual freedom because he could affect the course of history. Isn't this interesting? This tension. It's not so much that individual freedom shouldn't be allowed, but you have the evolution of society and individual freedom to some extent can be allowed, but beyond that, it affects the evolution of the masses. And you can't allow that. Then the real question is, who's doing the not allowing? And is there any real answer to that? So we're going to come back to that with the other books, especially with uh, Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World. We're going to come back to the idea of who does the controlling? Who makes these decisions of how much individual freedom we can actually have? It's a very fascinating discussion, but something that I think you can see is relevant to what we're dealing with in politics today. Does everyone have an idea now of how to proceed with the writing assignment? You see how we're taking this book and we're incorporating it into political discussions of today? Can you make reference to the book about like, political... Yeah, you're actually supposed to explain, in your opinion piece, explain the relevance of whatever aspect of the book you want to talk about to contemporary politics. How is it relevant to us today? And we've talked about all sorts of things like that. So you're to explain it to someone who hasn't had this course. So someone that would be saying, well, why did you study science fiction and politics at Emory University? And then you'd be saying, well, for example, this is what we learn about politics from Isaac Asimov's 
Foundation Trilogy, the three basic books of the Foundation Trilogy, and explain it, wh- how, what relevance it has to, to you know, p- our own understandings. Pardon me? So you're just making parallels between the books and... Exactly, and reality. You're supposed to interpret our current political reality from the perspective of these, of these authors. So you're making it relevant. And that means when you're done with the course, you're able to go out and say, when you're having discussions with people in the dorm, people in your other classes, and they're talking about this and the other thing, you can actually say, this is very relevant. This is an old topic that's been discussed, for example, in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. This is the issue of X, Y, and Z. And explain it to them. And you'll be adding a new perspective to that to that political debate that they'll be having. So this is your chance to do that. And you'll do that with each one of these papers. So the paper gets handed in on Thursday, in a couple days. And you read a very short book, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. It's a fast going, but it's a great one. Okay. Double spaced. Is that what you said? Yeah. Double spaced, normal margins. Minimum two and a half pages. Maximum three and a half pages. That's apparently uh, that, that's about the p- length of an opinion column, uh, an opinion column in the New York Times. Okay, okay, great. And we'll meet in the normal meeting room.